Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, we were just having a discussion about the Supreme Court ruling earlier today, five to two in favor of giving expats the right to vote. Was that the right call? Let's find out. Conrad Black is on the line, the author, commentator, and historian, and uh, a regular contributor to this program at this time. Conrad, good afternoon. Are you staying warm? I, I am, thanks. I bravely made a foray downtown in the morning, but I retreated into a properly heated area for the balance of the day. All right, well, you're one of the lucky ones. Uh, Conrad, on this Supreme Court decision, I don't know if you followed it or not. A but, little bit, yeah. Well, they say that, you know... Uh, and this was a law that Stephen Harper had repealed that first came in in 93, and he said, no, you've got to have lived uh, at least within a five-year window in Canada. Uh, if you're outside the country for any prolonged period of time outside of five years, that kind of disqualifies you uh, because you're not really fully invested uh, in the country and its doings and so on and so forth. And uh, some people contested that. The Trudeau Liberals actually promised in the election of 2015 that they would rescind it, and they did last month, but this... Ruling it had been before the court. The court came out with it earlier today, five to two, saying expats still get a vote. You can't disenfranchise them. Does that make sense to you, the ruling? I have to say that it does. I mean, I know that there's a very serious argument to be made against it. I, I, you know, I don't think you can be dismissive of either side of, of the argument. But yes, I, I mean, I, I think um, I think it's very possible for people to be absent from the country more than five years and still follow it closely, feel keenly about it, and uh, and not have been diluted in their sense of belonging to it, that they are outside maybe for reasons that, that are, are, are hard to reconcile with citizenship uh, in the sense of civic participation, but they often... Are, are, are away just because their career calls them there and they would really rather be in Canada, but their self-interest temporarily requires them, even for extended periods, to be away. And I, I think we should go with citizenship as the criterion here. All right, and so if somebody's a citizen by birth, let's say, but never having set foot in this country, uh, uh, how do you feel about that? Ultimately, they get a vote too? Uh I suppose to be consistent, the answer is yes, that they do. I have to say, I think the numbers of people involved in a thing like that would be very small. And and I'm not sure where their vote would be if they'd never been in the country. I'm not sure, you know, what constituency, if it's a federal election we're speaking of, for example, or, or provincial, whatever. I, I don't I don't know how I don't know how you would determine what you know what what constituency their vote counted in. So. It becomes practically difficult in that case, and and it also is a strained exercise of the principle of citizenship. I mean, those who are born, who are citizens, who are who've never been in the country, born outside the country, and never been in it, they would be born of Canadian citizens outside the country when they were born, and when you know when the young people were born, obviously, mm-hmm. and and um, and and who just never moved to Canada. That that one. I give you maybe that's where you break it, and and what you say is, 
as long as they were once Canadians and professed an intention to return eventually, then let them vote. But if they've never been in the country, then, you know, I mean, we've got to be talking about fewer than 100 people here, but rights don't belong only to those who are numerous, so you need a rule for everybody. And I would say you probably draw the line there. All right, with Conrad Black. Still with constituency matters, we've got this native thing going on in northwestern uh British Columbia, and, uh, you know, the protests have spilled over uh, across this country as well as into the United States. And uh, earlier today, we saw sort of a rolling blockade of the 401 from Agwasasne near Cornwall all the way down to uh, outside of Belleville. Now, these national energy projects that go across unceded native lands, it seems to me like this is an irreconcilable thing. Except that it's the sort of problem that simply has to be reconciled. Uh, I mean, I agree that uh, it appears unlikely it's going to be reconciled voluntarily, but uh, I, in, I am actually a hardliner against that kind of uh, civic disruption. I, I perfectly accept the right of anyone to to uh, demonstrate in a legal manner if they have a grievance. And and that's a valuable right that always has to be protected. But uh, that does not give them the right to stop people lawfully driving, for instance, between Montreal and Toronto or something. Let's say for some reason you and your family were on that trip today, and the whole thing was stopped because of some Native people complaining about uh, shipment of energy across, you know, allegedly um, sacred burial grounds or whatever whatever their complaint was. I mean, this is nonsense. I mean, it, it, it's a non sequitur. Their, their complaint is not with you, and it's not with the public whom they're disrupting. Their complaint is one that should be carried on in courts of law. You know, Conrad, when I say it's irreconcilable, you said, yeah, but it's got to be reconciled. Uh, but any idea how that would be? Well, yeah, I am in favor of the uh, rediscovery of uh, some concept of the law of eminent domain and the prevalence of the national interest as determined by the High Court of Parliament. We have to take back the the legislative function from the courts. Their job is to interpret the law, not to make the law. And and Parliament has to decide, or you, you may need maybe a joint jurisdiction where you need Parliament and a provincial Parliament. I, I, you know that depends on exactly what we're talking about. But the the, ele- the senior elected officials have to determine those issues that are in the national interest and where the buck stops with them. That's what they're paid to do. They are sent to legislate and to determine as best they can judge at the national interest, and they have to assert that interest. They may have to compensate various parties. You may have to compensate the Native people for things or, or whomever the complainant is. Uh, that I understand, and that's only fair. But we can't have the whole country brought to a standstill because somebody has a complaint. And we can't have judges seizing the Charter of Rights, which was never intended for this purpose, to simply make up the law themselves, every every single judge doing it himself, not stare decisis where there's some precedent he's to follow, much less the intention of the legislator. That, In this case, the intention of the legislator was Pierre Trudeau, and his intention was not to create jurisdictional chaos in this country and not to have the elected officials abdicate. Well, it's kind of ironic that his son now is on the horns of a dilemma because it's being cited that this is a betrayal of reconciliation if they go ahead with the project, that the natives should have last word, and even within the natives themselves, their indigenous communities, uh, there's that debate of who actually has the true authority, the elected members or uh, the hereditary chiefs. 
And uh, when you start to really get granular or down into the weeds on this one, again, I bring up, I don't know how this is reconciled. Well, look, we, we made a terrible mistake getting into this nonsense invented by this government that they were negotiating on a nation-to-nation basis with every identified native group. I mean, it's nonsense. There's only one sovereign nation in Canada, and it's the government of Canada that is the, where, the, where the sovereignty reposes. Uh, and uh, the Parliament of Canada, with the distribution of powers, so there is a devolution to provinces in, in key areas like property and civil rights. But that's all set out, and that's how we have to work it out. By the way, the irony, you say, is, is double in a sense, that in the brief invocation by the provincial government a few months ago of uh, the notwithstanding clause, it was by the attorney general of the province, uh, Carolyn Mulroney Lapham, whose father severely criticized the existence of the notwithstanding clause. So, you know, they, these generations go on, they continue to produce leaders who are elevated by popular election to senior positions, but they, they find themselves sometimes arguing, uh, you know, arguing against the cases their fathers made. And speaking of arguments, I want to do uh, just allude to what your piece in the Post will be about tomorrow, having read it online. Uh, you say, in a nutshell, that America, uh, rather than, you know, the prevailing wisdom, I guess, uh, or the received wisdom, is not in decline. It's actually in a new ascendancy, a bit of a renaissance. How do you square that? Well, look, I, I believe me, I realize how much hucksterism and nonsense there is in the whole Trump thing, but he said he would make America great again. And the fact is, if you can look past the stylistic infelicities, it's happening. I mean, the North Koreans are behaving themselves. The Chinese have basically sued for trade, on the, uh, as they had to do. I mean, they had a $365 billion surplus with the United States. And if the United States is given one year to retool, it doesn't have to import anything. It can produce everything it needs itself. So that, you know, that was a vulnerable area for China. And it is a country that's a spectacular economic development story, but it's based on state investment, state capitalism, infrastructure building, and a command economy. And that is, that is an economy in no condition to go 15 rounds with the United States of America, and, and neither is any other country. And, uh, you know, the, the, the United States now has more positions to fill, and it has unemployed people, and it has uh, low tax rates, minimal inflation, and, and a growth rate twice Canada's and, and more than five times Europe, taken, uh, the EU taken as a whole. Now, that is a comeback. Well, all right, and don't laugh when I ask, but what about diminished international respect? Uh, that's a public relations issue. That's there. I, 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 but the reason for it is that the world generally likes relatively amiable and not very strong American leaders. The world liked Jimmy Carter. They liked Barack Obama because they never asserted American strength. But in the so-called chancelleries of the world, in the government's, you know, in the foreign ministry in, in Beijing and Moscow and Paris and foreign office in London and so on, they thought that Obama was, was a Panglossian Peter Pan. And they, they realized that Trump is a – they may think he's a boor and they don't want to invite him to dinner, but they, they know he means business. It's like Lord Palmerston's view of General Andrew Jackson. He said he's a horrible man, but he's the only foreign statesman I've ever been afraid of.
All right, no Panglossian Peter Pan he. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You can call Donald almost anything, but not that. All right, Conrad, we'll let you go on that note. Uh, stay warm this weekend. We'll talk next Friday. Right, you are, John. Thanks very much. Thank you, Conrad Black, author, commentator, and historian. <laughs> you know who else is no Panglossian Peter Pan? Jerry Diaz. Man, he was in full throttle in Windsor, just across the river from GM headquarters today. Against that backdrop, he was going on a rant. It was a screed. Some kids would call it a Jeremiah ad. Or maybe that's Conrad. I should have run that by him. But uh, I've got to play you some of that. And uh, the contrast, too, with a professional wrestler of note is rather striking. We'll run that clip by you, too. Have some fun on a Friday afternoon. We'll get to the news at the top of the hour. The Finance Minister, Vic Fideli, after 5 o'clock on this marijuana dispensary lottery and a whole lot more. But Jerry Diaz and what he had to say earlier today on The Oakley Show, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.